0: Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. And
1: Michael Waits.
0: Well, welcome to Asia Tech Podcast. We are the voice of the Asian tech ecosystem. We're talking about why Asia matters. My name is Graham Brown, joined by Michael Waits, Graham in Singapore, Michael in Bangkok. Michael, how are you doing? I'm
1: doing great, Graham. How are you doing?
0: Fantastic. We're traveling again, finding out what's going on in the Asian tech ecosystem and To report this week, there was a big conference down in Kuala Lumpur, Yeah, GES, wasn't it, the Global Entrepreneurship Summit. Interesting to see all the entrepreneurs gather, entrepreneurs and investors gather in Kuala Lumpur for the week. Uh, One of the keynotes that came out of that conference, Michael, was Michio Kaku, who isn't one of the names you necessarily associate with entrepreneurship, but I suppose on the innovation side, he's a big name. So Anybody that knows Michio Kaku would know him from his appearances on TV. He's that gray-haired, wise, second-generation <laughs> Japanese-American dude who was the founder of Stringfield Theory, or one of the right. co-founders. So he's an intelligent right. guy, knows his stuff. Yes. And uh, he was on record. And this was uh, in an interview with a friend of ours, Dana Bluen, who does the Southeast Asia Business Podcast. Well-recommended if you want to know about the latest in innovation in Southeast Asia. Very much so. And he said to Dana on this podcast, which I think will be published soon, but look out for it. He said that Silicon Valley does not have a monopoly on innovation. So I want to discuss what that means and why Asia matters. And just to preface that, you know, Michio Kaku apart from founding string field theory which i suppose is good enough to put on anyone's resume when it comes to innovation right he can but stop with that exactly <laughs> it's not like oh i uh, i made an app He's he, one of the co-founders of string field theory but he's just to, he, he is one of the genuine innovators and just out of interest his resume includes when he was in high school he used 400 pounds of scrap metal and his entire house is electrical power supply to build a homemade atom smasher. Can you imagine that? Wow. high school kid building that thing. So that's pure innovation. These people understand innovation. They understand the raw innovation. They can do it without seed funding, without an incubator, without an accelerator. They think innovation. So they know innovation when they see it. And he comes out on record and saying that Silicon Valley does not have a monopoly on innovation. A guy from the U.S., what does that mean?
1: Well, I think it's really indicative of some of the things that we've been talking about actually over the past year. What it means is that, and let's look at some other, at at least things that we've been reading recently, something like 50% of the founders of the companies that are are going on right now in Silicon Valley are Asian. So Hmm. it's telling you that even though some of the innovation still remains in Silicon Valley, that a lot of it is emanating from Asia. Hmm. And I think it's really significant because... As the U.S. market and Europe, not so much so, continues to get saturated with um, startups and funding is just getting so huge, a lot of those people are going to move back to their home country and do the innovation there. We see it a lot actually already. We talk about diasporas, right, a lot. We see it already happening in places like India. We know it happens in Vietnam. Um, We see that a lot. And the same thing is happening in Indonesia and in Malaysia, right? So Cheryl Yo came back about a year and a half ago or two years ago. You see gigantic companies like Grab being founded there. And not just, you know, we want to talk about the difference, right, between copying and innovation. Grab itself is massively dominating the ride-hailing and the ride-sharing space in Southeast Asia because it's really understood the innovation around ride-sharing that more established companies like Uber, or Lyft hasn't even tried to come into the region, um, have understood way better than companies that come in and kind of airdrop themselves here. So those those types of teams are innovating here or in spaces that companies that come out from outside the region have no way to understand because they're not here. And frankly, if you listen to the conversation that we had with um, Vlad Salodiki, right, who runs Life.Srita, one of the main points that he and I are making in that podcast was Unless you have boots on the ground, unless you're in Asia, you cannot understand mm. the unique and sort of idiosyncratic issues that arise. And then in that sense, you can't solve them. We, we talk about this a lot. Mm. But entrepreneurs essentially want to solve problems and they want to solve big problems. And because we live in a greenfield environment that's growing really rapidly, some of the best problems to solve are in Southeast Asia are in Asia for sure right and that that's China India it's like all the way from India all the way over even to Japan in some cases right where there's plenty of room for innovation particularly in the in the SME space where you know a large percentage of Japanese employment happens outside of really large companies so
0: we started off by talking about this quote from Michio Kaku which really is establishing that now we need to look beyond Silicon Valley if we want to find out where innovation is happening. Are we seeing a, a step change in the sense that where, where Asia existed in the shadows of the U.S. In, in Silicon Valley, it's now sort of building up a bit of momentum and confidence it can step out of those shadows? Because you mentioned the 50% of startup founders in, in Silicon Valley being of Asian origin. To me, that's really interesting because that that sort of deals with the criticism that's been leveled at Asia for generations. And whether it's true or not, it's all sort of held them back. And that is that Asia is just very good at copycatting. And and economically, that may be a a foothold, isn't it, to get themselves up and look at the progress of Japan. You know, it was always done through copycatting in the early days. But are we now seeing a stage where, like in China, are we moving beyond copycatting? And there's now sort of a new generation of creative entrepreneurs
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't even think, I don't even think you can compare where the startup scene is and sort of the copying versus innovation is today versus where it was five years ago. And even if you think about the players in the market, right? So if you think about five years ago, and I was talking to somebody about this yesterday as well, um, Rocket Internet, which is just famous. Infamous in a way for just taking a business model that exists in one place and implementing it somewhere else. So mm. that whole concept of copying was what made them famous and scary back in 2012 and 2013. And yet, you almost never hear them discussed today. Now, they have created similar to the way that you know PayPal and LinkedIn have created their own little mafias in the United States. The Rocket Teams have actually created mafias here as well, and that's interesting. I was like I said, I was talking to one of them yesterday. But one of the things that they learned, and I was talking to the founder of a company yesterday, which we'll talk about later. But one of the things he said was, we tried to copy a business model in Europe, and it didn't work. Mm -hmm. Because the incentives that Internet users have in Southeast Asia are just very different than they are in um, in the United States and Europe. And one of the things he talked about was convenience versus, versus incentives, so he gives incentives to his users, and because of the incentives that he gives, and they're not large, right? So in the old days, you had companies like Insogo, where they'd, it was a Groupon model, right? And they'd convince people to come in at an 80% discount or a 70% discount. This was terrible for the business owners because they bleed themselves dry on the discounts, trying to get more people to come into their business, and yet there was no loyalty built upon those deals. Then what he's found is that just small incentives, really small incentives, a 10% sort of off hour discount Mm -hmm. is what's taking people in. It's just innovating again around business models. And we see the, the Grab Taxi doing the same thing. They're innovating in the payment space, right? Like Uber doesn't have their own payments. They use somebody else. But Grab has figured out that if they can get people to use their payment, they can get people to use their ride hailing services. And that's just another innovative way to get people to use things that they do. Gojek, an Indonesian company, has completely innovated in the space because a lot of their transportation takes place on motorbikes, which mm. don't—that doesn't exist in the United States because the road systems are different and the infrastructure is different. And those are just a few examples of it. And then further, you see the Chinese companies coming in. You know, we talk about them, whether mm. it's Tencent or Alibaba coming into the rest of asia right because the us is creating a little bit of, has created a little bit of a vacuum for large companies so the chinese are coming in into india into the rest of asia and taking the things that they've learned in their greenfield environment and applying some of them into the rest of asia as well but that type of innovation is not possible for companies outside of the region to do because they just don't have any idea what's going on here
0: i'm curious you said earlier, Michael, that this has changed rapidly in five years. This is a theme we keep coming back to, but even looking at Singapore as an example, where I am today, you know, the difference between 2012 and 2017 is huge. W- what has changed? It, surely we haven't seen a cultural shift because to have a generation of people who are less concerned about copying models and more concerned about being creative, that requires a bit of a cultural shift more than anything. So, what are you seeing? from a top-down view in the last five years, has changed fundamentally that you think now is the time that Asia really matters?
1: Okay, so to it's a really important question, right? And one of the ways to accelerate growth and development of any sort of ecosystem is connectivity between other parts of the ecosystem. And I think this is a good way to talk about what I'm going to be doing over the next few days, right? So I'm flying to India tomorrow to... excuse me, to talk at a conference there, to start up India Summit. And the main topic, I'm giving a keynote address on the second day of the conference. And the reason why I'm talking is to talk about cross-border investment. So the reason why this matters, this is a paradigm change, right? Because when you're first building an ecosystem, it's like when you first build your own house. You just want to make sure that the structure is okay Mm -hmm. and then that the, the house that you build above it is fine. And then you start worrying about your neighbors. Are they okay? And then it's the town, and then it's the locality, and then it's the region, and then it's the country. And then you say, you know what? Our country is going to be stronger if we're interconnected with the economy in Malaysia or in Singapore or in Indonesia. And that's what's starting to happen now. And the reason why that's so important is because, you know, getting back to one of the things we talked about a few weeks ago is nobody succeeds alone. But if you can... Join other forces in your region, so if India starts investing in Thailand, and Thailand starts investing in Indonesia, and Malaysia starts investing in Vietnam, and then everybody's kind of in the same boat together, the growth of that ecosystem accelerates, but it also means that you're mixing and matching ideas, right? Because again, in Southeast Asia alone, and in Asia in general, you know, these countries are really different with different customs and different cultures and and different languages, But the more interconnectivity that they have, and this is something we talked about last Mm -hmm. week, the more likely it is that they're gonna learn from each other, and that learning ends up being this sort of, sorry, really powerful circle, right? This virtuous circle of innovation that happens when they say, we haven't tried that here. But in combination with the things that you're doing and with the things that we're doing, we have a much more powerful way to innovate in a way that you can't in other places where the ideas are so much more homogeneous. And that's a big paradigm change, I think, in the last five years. Because when the systems start to grow, they have to grow sort of hyper-locally first, because nobody knows what they're doing. And now that people have kind of figured things out, and that little companies have started to grow everywhere, that uh, the growth is actually outpacing people's expectations. And we can talk about an official study that's been done Mm. by Google, which is interesting and one of their partners in the region, Temasek. So Temasek ends up being the sovereign wealth fund in Singapore. So it's not just, you know, again, two gals in a basement doing some research. It's two of the biggest entities in the world are saying, we thought, you know, we, re- we released a report a couple of years ago that said Southeast Asia was going to grow to like a certain number of people. Um, internet users, right? And They said it was going to grow from two hundred and sixty million to four hundred and eighty million internet users by two thousand and twenty, and the new report that they've issued says that those numbers are actually going to accelerate and that's interesting right but that and that acceleration is what drives the innovation as well
0: right so you have a lot of input factors in the growth of Asia at the moment. you have for example, like this Google Temasic report which states that you know what people thought was going to happen in Asia, particularly Southeast Asia, was, you know, maybe a bit too bearish and actually it's outgrowing people's expectations, especially when it comes to internet usage and everything that sort of hangs off that. You have also the the factors we just talked about in terms of innovation. We've got other top line data as well. We've talked about this before in previous shows that, you know, one third of all unicorns in the world are are in Asia. Most of those are in China. Those are... You know, okay, that's fine on as they stand, but they're contributing to that growth in the region as well. We're seeing Alibaba and Tencent and so on, and you have you know these one-off stories which are becoming increasingly commonplace. Like we talked about autonomous cars the other week, Michael. And right,
1: right, right. Neutonomy, Neutonomy, right?
0: Exactly. The Boston-based Neutonomy. And you know Boston is is the home of a lot of sort of very high tech research like you know the robotics, um, driverless cars and so on, um, because it has the you know it has the connectivity with the education establishments there and the investors, you know they've chosen to introduce their robo taxi test fleets in Singapore, and there's a number of reasons for that. We talk about it in the driverless cars episode a few months back, mainly being is that it comes to regulation. So you think about that in terms of input factors for Asia. You have an environment where there's a lot of concentrated capital in these unicorns. You have an environment where you have a lot of internet users and there's a lot of growth. And then you have, on top of that, this environment where you have a favorable regulatory, um, you know, right. lay of the land. That all looks good. Now, you're talking about cross-border investment. You're going to India to talk about cross-border investment. Let's talk about that a little bit because this goes back to what we talked about last week, which was, you know, when it comes down to growing the ecosystem, it's got to be about conversation, not entertainment. Because everybody's out there, you know, we talk a lot to angels. And if you listen to Michael's angel show on Asia Tech Podcast, you'll see there's a a class of angel investors who sort of cross borders. They're boundaryless, if you like, right? So these are investors who, you know, they live in Singapore, or invest in Southeast Asia, or live in Japan, invest in Asia, they're not limited to that hyper local view of the world no now these are people who are going to drive the asian tech ecosystem right just as much as those unicorns with their wealth funds and so on but it's got to be about conversation, not entertainment so let's talk about that in the context of asia so why are you going to india first and then how do you see that trip to india contributing to the conversation and less of the entertainment and what is that problem anyway
1: well, so here's the problem, right? And we, we talk about this too. We hear constantly from not just angel investors, but everywhere from the earliest investors all the way out to institutional investors that they'll travel from their home city to, you know, a, a faraway city just to hear like two five-minute presentations or two three-minute presentations or I really wanted to meet this startup, so I went to that thing in Vietnam. Um, but again, once they get to Vietnam, all they're seeing is a pitch alley or a demo day or some speed dating thing that's three to minutes or five minutes long on average. Mm. And I think they end up leaving really disappointed, right? There's this great phrase in Japanese, sorry, it always pops into my mind Fumanzoku. Like, I'm just really unsatisfied. Yeah. I'm just unsatisfied um it's that feeling you have when you go to a really bad restaurant and you're starving and you eat some food and you're like i just need to go have some really good food even though i'm not hungry anymore just so i lose that sense of dissatisfaction but that's the kind of feeling that people have when they travel around so why are we going to india i've if you think about it i've been living in asia for almost 30 years and i've never been to india so that's bad right to begin with but to create that connectivity and we've interviewed people from India I think five or six people over the hundreds of so people that we have interviewed um, we've done a lot of contact with India but we've never met any of them face to face it's very important for me to meet people face to face to stand up in front of them and create that connectivity because that forces as you said the conversation now the one thing that I won't do when I travel to another city is Participate in something that I think is there just for entertainment. This is a group of people, right, that is really trying to create some connectivity between the early stage investment in India and the rest of the region, right? I mean, India is a gigantic entity, a gigantic company, country, excuse me, in its Mm -hmm. own right. But again, it still has years of development ahead of it. And I think the, the smartest people or the smartest entities in the world realize that there's a whole bunch of things that they don't know. And what they're trying to do, so most of the speakers at this conference are Indian, and that's fabulous, because that's exactly the way it should be. But a few of us, so Jan, who we interviewed, right, um, is going to be there, I'm going to be there, and a friend of mine named David Pasiak is going to be there. all talking about slightly different subjects, but the whole point is we're all going there for a two-day conversation about how to help grow that ecosystem, but also how to better connect it to the rest of the region. And that's them saying that that's important. And I think we're starting to see this change. People are tired. We're gonna keep talking about this, right? In the context of the fact that Asia's now really starting to matter, it just needs to be better organized as well. And people are starting to realize we cannot do this, we can't grow this as fast as we want, as fast as Google and Tomasek expect us to grow in the future, Mm -hmm. unless we're better organized and better connected. Right, And the better way to connect people is through this sort of ongoing dialogue and conversation. Can I give you another example? I had a meeting yesterday with a guy named Eric Chung. Eric's been living in Japan for a long time. He built some stuff on the gaming side. He worked in the finance industry as well. And he's advising some companies. They are similar to what we do in Asia and in Southeast Asia. And he said it's really at the point now where that Japanese ecosystem which again has a ton of money and a ton of resources now figuring out that they need to be better connected to the rest Mm. of the region the rest of Asia and that's like kind of all the way east to all the way west I mean people think about India as being in the east but from our perspective it's the most western part right so we're trying to combine those two things together and everybody's realizing whether it's all the way you know east in Japan or all the way west in India that unless you're having and Eric said this to me yesterday a face to face conversation as great as sort of remote access and remote communication is it's that face-to-face interactivity and conversation that really matters and it's we eric and i sat with each other for two hours yesterday and talked about how to better coordinate the things that we're doing and that's the conversation that needs to take place and that's and i said to him yesterday as well would you want to do this meeting in three minutes and you just kind of laugh it, <laughs> right? Because that's how silly it is, but that proves how silly this whole concept is, right?
0: So we're talking about the concept of entertainment when you talk about silly, right? And that seems yeah. to be the, the, the knee-jerk reaction to, to building uh, an ecosystem in, 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 we see this a lot in the big conferences and you mentioned Japan as an example. I just want to talk a little bit about that in the context of that whole connectivity because japan's quite isolated when it comes to ecosystems weirdly yes and it's strangely enough because japan is one of the biggest foreign direct investors in many of the the asian economies particularly in thailand and vietnam and so on you know historically it's invested a lot of money and there's a lot of big japanese presence in these countries right but when it comes to startups and ecosystems it's still way behind and i wonder if you know when you have ecosystems grow in isolation it tends to go to its default mode, which is that entertainment mode. Let's talk a little bit about that. You talk about three-minute conversations. You know, I see that when I go to these, I won't name any names, but these corporate entrepreneurship or
1: entrepreneurship venture funds. So In Japan, you mean? Yeah.
0: So you have these large mobile phone operators, for example, like, you know, mobile companies in Japan, and they'll have their own... I don't want to name names, right? Because I'm going to get in trouble. There are only three of them, them, but yeah. Exactly. So you take your pick. So they'll have their own internal accelerator, and what they'll do is they'll have their demo day, and the demo day will have everybody stand up and do a pitch, and the pitch is then followed by lots of clapping, and then there's an award at the end where a guy who comes out who, you know, is on the wrong side of 75 presents a some kind of trophy I mean I'm being generous here to, yeah, you, after, are. you know the winner of the pitch competition and or the token female um, so uh, just that's how it works that's sort of their view of entrepreneurship and that's what I think of as entertainment you talk about these three-minute conversations you know what what's going on here what how do we break out of it and what do you want to do better in India that's not going to be this model
1: of building an ecosystem Okay, so it's again, it's the perfect segue. I sent an email this morning to the gentleman that I met yesterday, Eric, and I said, you know, it was great to meet you yesterday. Um, I learned a lot. Hopefully it was as productive for you as it was for me. And I said, let's keep this conversation going. And it's exactly what I said. And I think in the same way that you meet a new friend or you meet a new partner or even you meet a new business partner, your first discussion is really introductory. And I think it needs to be substantive and it needs to be slightly longer than just a few minutes. So the idea is you go to India, you stand in front of a group of, you know, a few hundred people and you just tell them, here's what we're doing. Here's why we think cross-border investment is really important. Here's how we think it accelerates the growth, not just of your ecosystem, through idea exchange, um, best practice exchange. But also, capital exchange. If you're invested in another country, right, you're, you have a vested interest in making sure that not just that investment itself, but that that country itself continues to prosper. And the thing that I'm going to say is let's keep this conversation going. Mm. And I say that to a lot of people because, again, speed dating too, or demo days, right, it's like it's geographically specific, it's time specific. And in general, when it's over, it's over. And people not go home and go back to their regular lives. But if your relationship is built on substantive conversations, then that's the way you're going to interact with people over time as opposed to just – and I do, I've do. i seen this a lot actually, right, where you see somebody at an event and all you really do is smile at them and say, yeah, we we see each other everywhere. And you never actually sit down and have a conversation and figure out what that person does. And when you do finally sit down with that person, you realize instead of just passing each other in the hallway for the past four years – Mm -hmm. If we had sat down three years ago and just said, here's what I think, here's what I want to do, and here's how I think we can help each other, just consider it, right? And again, that's the same thing I did on Monday when I was talking to another potential partner. I said, here are my ideas, but don't say anything yet. Just think about it. Think Mm -hmm. about it in relation to all the other things you're doing, and think if it fits into what you want to achieve. And then let's talk about it again. Let's continue that conversation in a week or so when I'm back from India and when I'm done giving sort of the crypto um, presentation tonight, actually. And then we'll talk about it more and think, think about it if it works, right? Because both of us travel a lot. He travels the region I travel the region. So let's continue the conversation that I think is the best way to start a relationship mm. because then that's what your relationship is, right? So if you start with a really short burst of three minutes of this and five minutes of that, then that's all you have, You don't even know if your interests are aligned, right? And alignment is another word that I want to start talking about a lot because I think it's really important. And it's important from a lot of different perspectives. It's important from a work perspective. Do I want to work with, pick a company, right? Google. Do I want to work with 10x? Are my interests aligned with what they're doing? Because if they're not, we can argue back and forth forever about what we want to accomplish, but we're never going to accomplish it because our interests aren't aligned. And that's the other thing you want to talk about when you talk about cross-border investment is, are your interests aligned with the company in which you're investing or the entities in which you're investing? And do the investors understand what that alignment means?
0: Hmm. So establishing a relationship built on conversation. That's how investment, that's the fundamental of investment because it's based on trust, isn't it? Let's not forget that anything's different in the startup world to the real business world or the real world of relationships out there and human beings, right? I wonder if, you know, when Asia looks at Silicon Valley as a model, and we go back to Michio Kaku's words, Silicon Valley does not have a monopoly on innovation. You know, when Asia looks at Silicon Valley, they see all this entertainment, factor that Silicon Valley generates. Right. They see the three minutes. They see the speed dating and the pitch days and the demo days and pitch competition, sorry, all that stuff. And they think that's how it works and they they absorb that sort of superficial aspect of an ecosystem. However, I guess, you know, we have to sort of step outside of our own thesis, if you like, and look at it and say, to what extent does Silicon Valley itself produce conversations? You know, where where is that happening? Because... If Silicon Valley is a model that works, surely, therefore, it has a very substantial base of conversations, which enables all this investment, right? Where does that happen in Silicon Valley?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, it must happen in the background, right? Because it's not something you actually hear about a lot. But right. what, what really must happen is your biggest, your biggest investors and your most successful investors in the valley Right. Teams like Sequoia, teams like Benchmark, teams like Anderson Horowitz. What they're doing is, and and you see it a lot, right? What they're doing is they're getting people to come into their office and they build, they do. If we talk to the partners there and we have spoken to an ex partner at Anderson Horowitz, one of the things she said was it was her job to sort of build relationships with the founders of companies over time Mm -hmm. so that when they, when those companies became investment ready, not only did they understand the business model, but they understood the people with whom they were going to be working and into the entities into which they were going to be investing. And that ends up being really important. And that actually is something that I hear a lot, is that we we don't invest in companies and we don't sort of help companies if we've just kind of met the founders. But we will invest in them because we, you know, we built a relationship with them over time. You hear really famous investors, if I can name them, like particularly on the angel side right like jason calacanis will say i invested in in uber because i had known travis kalanick right. for years before right. that yeah right so it wasn't just some random person coming into the house and saying and i have an idea for you know a black car rental business it was something that he'd known for a really long time coming in and saying here's my new idea and this gets back to what we we talked about a week or two weeks ago is that from an angel investment perspective, what you're really doing is you're investing in the arc of somebody's career.
0: Mm.
1: And if you're investing in a career, that means you're investing for long term, regardless of what any one of those individual entities are that are created by that founder. And that cre- that necessitates an elimination of noise, the search for signals. And that gets back to having a long standing conversation with that person. It's the only way you can build a relationship with them if that matters.
0: Yeah. That would be a lot easier in a, a single market like the U.S. I mean, even if one of you lived on the East Coast and one of you was on the West Coast, you would be known to each other if there was some sort of connectivity along the way. In Asia, you have lots of different markets. You have different cultures, different languages. That makes the challenge a lot bigger right for building relationships and in a sense uh, you know the default is to just focus on your own little market your own little world right as they say in japan there's a saying which is the frog who lives in the well doesn't know the right. ocean right 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 you right. could easily be that frog so you know like going to india i'm sure a lot of indian startups and indian investors are just focused on india which going back to Japan as an example, they have that, was it Galapagos phenomenon, right? Correct. Which is this really interesting idea, which, you know, Japan was a world leader in mobile technology in the late 90s. And I was there and you were there for that. We saw it happen and it just led the world by, you know, five to 10 years. And now it's pretty much trailing the rest of the world because
1: it had it. Yeah, Yeah, Docomo should have owned the whole world. So in the same way that Telenor which comes from Norway, it's a five and a half or six million person country, the same way that Telenor now has a, you know, a globally strong network of telcos that they own that gives them leverage in entire regions, you know, Docomo, actually, NCT Docomo did go out and try to buy telcos across the world, and I remember feeling, well, not scared, but watching it with trepidation, thinking, this is another place where the Japanese are going to own an entire ecosystem, and yet the success that they've had and this is true of all countries right we can talk about the japanese we can talk about you know even the chinese building things outside their own country and how successful they've been at it which is not so successful yet you know they ended up not being able to leverage the forward thinking stuff that they'd built at docomo mm. into creating a system for the rest of the world which was just a massive missed opportunity and maybe part of the reason was their ability to communicate properly, have that long term communication okay. and conversation with people and maybe that got in their way. I do I do want to make this point and it's, it's getting back to kind of the conversation we had a little bit earlier but I want to throw out some of these statistics because I think they're really important if that's okay. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so in this report that we talked about earlier and I'm looking at the report as I say this, right is that There's an expectation, right? So some other really important numbers about the economy right now. There are 330 million people on the internet in Southeast Asia, okay? And that's 70 million more since 2015. And if you just look at the growth that's taken place, not the projected growth, but the value of the internet economy in Southeast Asia was $2.5 billion in 2015, it's more than double that in 2017. That's just a fact, those are facts, right? Those are not projections. And they expect it to quadruple over the next eight years, which makes perfect sense, okay? Quadruple. That's gonna be, well, more than that, actually. expected to be like $200 billion by 2025. So the growth here is exploding. And let's just look at some more numbers, right, for why all this stuff matters. Users in in Southeast Asia spend 3.6 hours on the mobile internet every day. Again, another conversation I was having with Eric yesterday is that the rest of the world doesn't understand why the internet in Asia never moved to the desktop. Mm. They don't understand it. But this concept of being mobile first, which is something we've been talking about for a few years now, gives a whole bunch of power for people that are developing applications. Again, I was on the phone with um, Samir Chero yesterday talking about the go business and i said to him do you guys have an app as well he chuckled and said we've been mobile first from day one
0: Mm
1: -hmm. okay that's just the way it works there's 140 minutes of shopping online every month in southeast asia and this number i think is really important six million rides booked through ride hailing platforms every day Mm. every day that's almost one percent of the population in asia in southeast asia is getting into like an uber or a grab or a gojek every single day that means every 10 days 10 percent of the population is using a ride hailing app wow that that's insane if you think about it right well
0: yeah especially as these are platforms for other things
1: right as you say like payments yeah. yep well because gojek does everything from payments to <laughs> um to e-commerce, to delivery, right? Even Uber, although it's not working so well, is trying Uber Eats as well, and Grab is doing the same thing. Mm. In a way, the internet in the United States, right, has multiple providers for a whole bunch of different services. And I want to talk about Amazon in a second, because I think that's indicative of something else that's changing here too. Um, But in Asia, you see a lot of these are self-contained enterprises. Like WeChat just is the internet in China. And that's probably going to change over time, but I think in the same way that AOL was the internet in the United States back yeah. in the late eighties and early nineties, maybe it's just the early nineties and my memory's bad, that's that's happening. And it's just happening on such a large scale that it's gonna be hard to disintermediate that at some some point. But the other the other thing I want to point out is a money thing, getting back to the cross border investment. According to this report, more than twelve billion dollars. That's a big number has been raised by Southeast Asian startups since 2016 okay that's just huge mm. and and I think that that's going to continue to and there are more statistics here we can talk about later but I think you have to run through this report to see why Asia matters and why all this connectivity between the region is going to matter too because here's one of the questions I want to ask with all of the power and all of the knowledge and all of the data and all of the history that a company like amazon has they don't exist in china at all they made they through great fanfare over the summer they built started to build a business in singapore right and it's it's growing but it's not growing that fast and my biggest question for a company like amazon is Why didn't you do what the Chinese did and buy the Lozada brand and Lozada infrastructure and then build all your, you know, rework and rebuild all of your best practices on top of that? Mm -hmm. Because my view on this has actually changed over the last six months, right? It really feels to me like and even when I talk to people inside Lazada now. They feel like there's a massive a sea change happening inside that company and that the influence of what Alibaba is bringing in from just a pure organizational standpoint is changing the way that Lazada does business and it's making them even more and more powerful in the region. We can argue whether that's good or bad or not, but the point is that that's self-contained innovation and growth inside of Asia and that people coming in from outside the market are just going to get run over and they're going to disappear again. Yeah,
0: I am talking about a lot of the pain points associated with the customer experience in these markets as well, which big players like Alibaba and to an extent Amazon have addressed, and those pain points are quite localized. So they are. You know, for Amazon to come in, they're going to have different kind of pain points to deal with that they're used to in the US, right, which Alibaba is probably more geared up to dealing with because they've seen a lot of them before. You know, when I think about this Asia Matters future, and I think of it on a personal level as well. I'm curious to hear your your thoughts on this as well. I mean, you know, I see a market evolving, which is many, many different markets in one, which is many, many different borders, internal challenges, but huge opportunities. And arbitrage is a word that springs to mind, and that would please any trader, I'm sure. You know, where you have multiple markets, you have opportunities for arbitrage, right? Yeah. And, you know, there's opportunities. In, in a sense, a lot of people going back to the frog in the well, philosophy is that a lot of people don't want to look outside their markets because they're scared but the opportunities outside the markets are huge and if you're in the u.s you don't really appreciate that because you have one giant market which you can just live in you know just in the same way that a lot of americans don't even travel because they don't need to they have everything there you know you've got every climate and every kind of lifestyle in the u.s you know why would you need to go abroad that's the kind of attitude and i think in asia you have a situation where you have You know, you need to go out. If There's huge opportunities outside your own market. And I think about the future, and you know, like going back to education, just to bring this in, if I can take a side riff on this and bring it back to you, is that, you know, I think about my own son. What would be the best education for him in the future? He's 11 years old now is that, you know, I think rather than training him specific skills, the best education I could give him now is to give him the experience of living in lots of different countries in Asia, exposure to cultures, languages, you know, English, Japanese, Mandarin. And to be able to understand that people of different cultures are fundamentally the same. You know, if if you know how to deal with these people, you can do business with them. And there's huge opportunities. If If you see boundaries between, you know, you... And the next country or the next city or whatever you're never going to take advantage of this opportunity however if you're boundaryless in your approach towards business and approach to these markets there's there's gigantic opportunities out there and that's how I kind of see it and you know that's the kind of Asian future that I'm envisaging and I wonder how you see it for yourself and your family as well
1: yeah I mean I don't know what to say except I could not agree with you more right so We can spend a lot of time talking about what actually gets taught inside of a school or an educational institution, but for me, the most important part about that educational process... No, right? I don't know. So where my daughter, who's 16, so just a few years ahead of your son, goes to school, Mm. um, there are 70-something nationalities represented. And if you watch the kids um whether it's a soccer game or a play or a dance recital or a concert, they interact with each other in ways that we never had the opportunity to do because we weren't exposed to them. And they are learning that, you know, if your friend is from India or if your friend is from Pakistan, or if your friend is from Iraq or if your friend is from Israel, or if your friend is from the UK, places that even if you haven't been there, but you now know people from there, it just means that your ability to adapt, understand new situations but also, like, include all of the thought processes. It's very similar to what we're talking about with cross-border investment, right? Yeah. So when they get older, the idea of like a cross-border investment for them is going to be something that already exists, because,
0: exactly.
1: as you said, that you know the frog at the bottom of the well doesn't know that the ocean exists. They already know that that ocean exists.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They've seen. And, They've seen it, they've been in it, they've interacted with it, they've had good, they've had bad, but they've also been able to adapt and understand like how to best operate inside an environment that's multicultural, right, multiracial, multilingual, right Your son is bilingual in a way or multilingual in a way that you couldn't have been when you were his age,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that was impossible for me to conceptualize when I was eleven years old, and now that's just that's normal right, and that's actually really, really positive. You're right. The thing, the best thing like you can give your kid is not necessarily, you know, knowing any particular skill. That doesn't hurt. But it's more important for them to get exposure to all the things that you mentioned multiple countries, multiple cultures, multiple races, and multiple languages. Because if you have that as a base, and if you're told, again, I have my own philosophy on this, but as a parent, right, if you, if you, have your children exude confidence if they feel confident about themselves and if they understand how to mm. act within the context of freedom, right? So I have this policy. I don't think freedom is something you give. I think it's, it can only get taken away because we're all kind of born with it, right? So it's like how much freedom do you allow somebody to have? Right, But if you Mm -hmm. give them that confidence, you give them the freedom, and then you expose them to a whole bunch of things that they may not have otherwise been exposed to, now you're talking about a real education that's going to become super useful as the world changes. Right, Because even from an employment perspective, whether it's in Southeast Asia or anywhere else in the world, the employment prospects and the sort of career choices that you and I had to make are going to be completely different Mm. than the ones that our children make, and they're better – Equipped to make those decisions, the more exposure they had, right? So if you think about it, you know, before like my daughter was 15 years old, she'd probably been in 25 countries. Wow. And I don't know about your upbringing, but yeah. I don't even think I got on a plane until I was like 15 yeah. years old.
0: Yeah, yeah, it was a big deal,
1: right? Right. Yeah. So her perspective and your son's perspective on that educational process, I think, is very different. But yeah. I think it's way more powerful than the way I was educated for sure.
0: Well I think of that in the context of cross border investment. Right. Because you know, one of the things I've experienced, and I'm sure you're gonna get this when you go to India, is you go to you know, when you do speaking at any of these conferences, you're always gonna get that guy who says, Well, we're different here. And, you know, you don't yeah. understand how Indians think and you know, that ain't how it works here in India. And I just pick in India not to you know bully india but just to pick out any country just so happens that you're speaking there this week right it could be anywhere it could be vietnam it could be singapore you always have that person and it it isn't that person in the minority there's a lot of these people because you know they think that you don't understand them because you don't live in that country you're not one of them and therefore how do you understand how to do investment in this country and that is you know (laughs) Uh, often a prevailing attitude when you go into new markets.
1: New places, yeah.
0: How do you deal with that?
1: So the way to deal with it is having this continuous conversation. I want to go back to some of the notes that I made when I was talking to Vladislav Solotki, right, who, again, is the managing partner of Life which is a fintech investment fund based in Singapore. Here's, here's what he said to me um, in general terms. He said, I was living in Russia and I was very interested in fintech and I noticed that there was a lot of growth in Asia. So I would get on the phone or I would communicate with some people in the region, and they said, look, it's really interesting. We love talking to you, but let us know when you're in the region, and then we'll talk to you. Hmm. And he just heard this theme over and over again, right? And he said, you have to be on the ground to understand the issues and the pain points, which is a, a topic you rose earlier. And he said, when I, when I continued to have all these conversations, I knew that I could not do this remotely, And that's when I moved into the region. He said, I I could have moved in Singapore. I could have moved in – it didn't really matter. I picked Singapore as a base for multiple reasons, right, which aren't really relevant. But I had to be in the region because it was the only way that I could sit down with an entrepreneur in any of the countries in the region and actually understand what they were doing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the answer to that question is, you know what? You're right. There are a lot of things I don't understand, but that's where the conversation becomes really important because if I have an ongoing conversation, right, with somebody in a, in a location where I don't live, like Jakarta, like Ho Chi Minh, right, you and I know this because we talk to partners in every single one of those cities all the time. And one of the reasons why we go to them is, can you tell me how this works again in Vietnam? Yeah. yeah. Cause I'm not there every day, right? So again, for me, just to get back to this thing that's happening in India over the next few days, I'm really excited about this because I've never been to India, mm. and my view on India is, you know, luckily I'm thoughtful enough to, to, to understand that I don't know everything about it, and that's fair, right? But my view is skewed, so I have preconceived notions about what it's going to be like by all the things that I've been told by multiple people, some of whom do live there, some of whom don't live there, mm. okay? And the idea is if you create those long-term relationships with people and you have a resource there that you can, on the ground that you can trust – then you can have not to, you know, beat a dead horse, but then you can have a constant conversation with them, and you can lean on them the same way they lean on you. And you know, we have this happen to us, right? People from the United States and outside the region call you, contact me, and say, "How does this work in Japan?" Mm-hmm. Right?
0: And you can give a better explanation of how it works in Japan than the Japanese, right? because
1: i had to figure it
0: out exactly and you had to look at it from the outside and that's why you know i suppose bringing it back is that even though you may not speak japanese as well as a a native japanese person you can understand their culture through the eyes of somebody who's not blurred or obscured by any sort of bias right because you've always seen it through the lens of uh, an outsider and that applies to anything right i mean if you were to go to india you know everybody's going to be excited about flipkart and e-commerce and all those kind of you know rifts i'm sure are going to come up when you talk about india and investment however looking at it as an outsider if somebody says oh what's well, good in india you're not going to be so swayed by that you know that sort of hype as the locals are right because you've managed to look at it with a lot more a lot more of a critical eye and i think that's really important when it comes to cross border investment right
1: Agreed completely. And again, it just gets back to all the things we talked about of having, you know, having partners going there locally, understanding what that thing is and continuing to have that conversation. Because unless you're doing that, you're just never going to, you're never going to have enough information. You're never going to make the right decisions. And we talked about this too, right? And that is, <clears throat> excuse me. And that is if you want to do cross border investment properly, and if you believe as I do, that the top of the funnel for that is sort of angel or early stage investing called what you want, or called angel investing, then you have to know who those angels are in every city and in every country in the region, and they have to get connected to each other through these conversations that are really important.
0: Mm. Hey, we started this podcast today, Michael, with that Michio Kaku quote, which is Silicon Valley does not have a monopoly on innovation. I just want your thoughts right. on this because let's talk about why Silicon Valley did have a monopoly on innovation until now and just so people can understand it. I think it's really interesting, this whole idea, especially if you think about San Francisco all the way down to the valley. And, you know, San Francisco has a major driver in innovation and a major talent pool for that innovation for in for in the recent years. And one of the things of, you know, any visitors to San Francisco will uh, experience is the, the diversity of San Francisco culturally. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> I think, you know, historically it's been colonized, so to speak, by many, many different uh, ethnic-backed groups, you know, from the Chinese to the Irish to the, you know, all different kinds have of, of landed in San Francisco to more recently some of the, uh, you know, second-generation Chinese coming in, Vietnamese and so on, Japanese, Koreans, you have just a really interesting mix of cultures going on there. And I wonder how much that contributes to innovation in itself. Because there was that study that I think we mentioned it in a previous podcast. And if not, let's bring it up now, that bean counting. I think it was James it's james Surowiecki, <laughs> the wisdom of the crowds. Let's go right. back to that. Because I think this sort of summarizes innovation and what we're trying to get to with why Asia matters. And the this experiment, which James Surowiecki did with wisdom of the crowds, is he gave people uh, challenge which is counting the beans in a jar and you sometimes you see this at these country fairs or these whatever they're called in america right where you get a jar of beans like jelly beans or right and you have to guess how many jelly beans there are in there and if you you are the closest guess you win and they gave it to groups james suroki gave it to groups of people and you know got the group to come up with a final figure you know, between themselves, what they thought was the right amount of beans in the jar. (laughs) And interestingly, they found there was a correlation between the diversity of the group and the accuracy of the guests. So the the more diverse the group, i.e. in terms of gender, in terms of race and age and cultural and, you know, economic background the closer they got to the actual number of beans in the jar whereas you know if you gave it just a bunch of white guys all the same kind of age they were the, the least effective in guessing the numbers i mean why is that the case why is that relevant to asia
1: well i think it's i mean there's a lot there to unpack so i want to answer the last question first i want to answer this the first question second and then i want to come back to why diversity matters so much but i think i think the relevance for having people interact more positively together if there's diversity like diversity itself you know in and of itself is that doesn't really mean much but why it's so positive from a guessing how many jelly beans there are in a jar perspective is because each one of those people knows before they start to guess whether it's a three group team or a 30 group team is that they have very little in common necessarily with the person who's standing next to the male female you know tall short fat thin um background is different so they know that they're going to have to work together to figure out where the common ground is.
0: Hmm.
1: And that, that in and of itself, that the whole discussion process is actually really powerful. right? I know that I'm different from you, let's figure out a way to find out how we can work together better to make the differences in the ideas that we have more powerful to accelerate them. That's in really general terms. But if you have a homogeneous group, the likelihood is that you're gonna just fall back on groupthink and just rely on the things you've already thought previously you know, you can say 30 white guys, you can say 30 cats, like it doesn't really matter to me, but the, the, the likelihood that one of those people inside a homogeneous group is going to just visibly disagree, even politely with somebody else in that group, risks the being expelled from that group at some level, whether it's physically being expelled, emotionally being expelled, or intellectually being expelled, and the reason why that's powerful is because there's a really strong um, sort of incentive to just agree and that is really bad for innovation. But I want to back up for a second and talk about you know, what Michio Kaku was talking about and why Silicon Valley is not necessarily the remaining only center of innovation. And let's just talk about the United States. okay? If you go back to the 80s and even the early 90s, even though Sand Hill Road still existed and some of your current really powerful venture capitalists were there, they weren't investing in companies like we're talking about today. Second of all, you would have thought back then that the center of innovation in the United States was in Boston. Hmm. Okay, And if you look at some of the companies back then that were, that were originated there, you go really far back. You see DEC, right? So DEC in, invented the microcomputer. But let's talk about software companies like Lotus, Okay, was built on Route 128, which was then called the Innovation Highway or the, you know, the Technology Superhighway. Even companies like EMC and the storage space, all of these companies were there. IBM's headquarters was based in Armonk, New York, so not Boston, but definitely on the East Coast. And one of the reasons why a lot of that innovation was taking place there was because it was an outgrowth of the education that took place at large institutions and universities like MIT, like Harvard, like Babson, like Tufts, like BU like Brandeis, and all of these were concentrated in Boston. Boston was the technological leader of the United States, and one of the other reasons that was given always was it's so close to New York, which is the financial center of not just the world, but also the United States, in, 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 you know, specifically. And what that meant is that a lot of the companies that wanted to start up back then did it there. But you're right. There was a shift when Stanford and Cal and sort of the open spaces of California started beckoning and that's where the venture capitalists were. Once the VCs started investing in software companies and stopped investing in companies in hardware like Apple and Next Computer Mm. and Sun, right? Once you saw big companies like Oracle start to invest in in other companies, then you had this shift from the East Coast to the West Coast. I mean, the the hegemony, or the hegemony, I don't know how you pronounce it, of Silicon Valley, frankly, is not that old. Sure, there was HP and all these founding stories back then, too, but those were few and far between. And what it means is that it's not necessarily location-specific. And, and I again, I had this discussion yesterday with somebody. There is sort of this inward looking, this frog thing you were talking about at the bottom of a well thing right now from a lot of the investors in Silicon Valley saying, you know what? Silicon Valley is the center of the universe for innovation. It's always going to be this way. It's an unchangeable, immutable thing, and it's always going to be here. But that actually is not true at any level. And in a way, just like, you know, hubris everywhere is really bad, but just like people I hear in the region say, oh, I already own, you know, Ho Chi Minh City. Si- I own this town and I yeah. own this thing. It's really great because what it means is that now they're comfortable, mm. and they're comfortable that they know everything better than other people do. And this gets back to I think what Michio Kaku was talking about, and that is, you know, Silicon Valley will always have innovation, but they don't have a monopoly on it. And as soon as you think you do, you're—I you know, wouldn't say doomed, but you're pretty much done, right? So I don't—I don't think that. There's anything necessarily structural there. Um, sure, university is great. There's plenty of money there, and everybody congregates there too, right? And you hear people like, like the Coffee X team is something we talked about months mm-hmm. ago. They were building this automated coffee distribution and making system in Hong Kong. They were invested by an investor in San Francisco, and they moved that whole business there. I'm not necessarily convinced that Coffee X as a business, which I haven't heard of since we first talked about it months ago, is any bigger or better because it's being built in Silicon Valley today, um, th- then it would have been if it had just remained in Hong Kong and built it out here. And frankly, if you listen to some of the people, even at Y Combinator, right, they invest in 150 companies every six months. They give them each $120,000. That's what, like 18 million bucks, right? It's a ton of money. But even they say that they look overseas for founders as mm. well, because there's just so much innovation taking place there. And frankly... Just like we talked about earlier, if you take those people from Asia, yeah, move them to Silicon Valley, the things that they transfer, the knowledge that they transfer to the people with whom they interact, whether it's in Colorado or in, or in Silicon Valley, is so powerful as well. And the more they do that, the more that founders in the U.S. and Silicon Valley realize, particularly if they're of Asian descent, you know what, I'm going home. Mm-hmm. We see a lot of this now. So I think that a lot of that innovation is going to move back into this region, and the more we build that sort of tight ecosystem around the beginning and the top of that funnel of angel investing and cross-border investment, the more likely it is that they're gonna come home or just stay here, because that's why they go to Silicon Valley, is that somebody there tells them, you're gonna learn more, it's easier to get invested, and you can build something faster. Mm -hmm. But frankly, the opportunity for that business from a growth perspective, not according to me, according to Google and Tomasek, is faster and bigger here than it's ever been. You've been
0: listening to Asia Tech Podcast, Graham Brown and Michael Waits. We've been talking about why Asia matters. And this week we were talking about the latest research from Google and Tomasek, which we'll publish in the show notes, the link to that report, as well as that quote from Michio Kaku, who was featured on our friend Dana Bluein's Southeast asia business podcast which we recommend as well michael a few travels coming up in the next week maybe we can share with the listeners where we're going to be over the next week
1: yourself right so i'm going to be in mumbai what day is today wednesday I'm flying to mumbai it's one of tomorrow. Weeks. it really is <laughs> mumbai and tomorrow. i've been accused of like you're traveling a lot and the idea is we want the podcast to be on the road nobody else nobody else's podcast does this everybody else sits kind of in their little space of comfort and actually has people come to them um you know, I know Mark Marin does this thing where he podcasts from the garage, and that's kind of cute. But um, I, I like to podcast from the road. And we'll talk about we actually bought some equipment to do that. Yep. So I'm going to be in Mumbai Thursday, Friday, Saturday, coming back on Sunday. Um, and I'm likely to be in Hong Kong on the 20th, the 21st, and the 22nd as well to talk to people. So I'll be traveling a lot and I'm obviously I, I'm based in Bangkok so that's you know three cities in 2 weeks and that's kind of the way I want this to look going forward.
0: On the road. I'll be in Singapore as I am now for the next couple of days heading to Thailand. I'm going to see you in Bangkok on Sunday, isn't it? I'm losing awesome. count. Yeah,
1: We're going
0: to meet up in Bangkok and then heading back to Tokyo. So we got I don't know what five, six cities covered in a week between us. Yep. More of, more of that to come in 2018. So look forward to meeting uh, any of the listeners if you happen to be in the cities that we're uh, rocking up to to make contact with us. Check us out on asiatechpodcast.com. Sign up to our newsletter there. Um, you can tweet us at asiatechpod if you want to get a heads up on what our travel itineraries are going to be. Um, if you have any questions or feedback on anything we talked about and why Asia Matters in particular, if any of these riffs have stuck with you or struck a nerve with you, then please let us know because this is a conversation. The more people can get involved in the conversation, the better it is for everybody. This is Asia Tech Podcast. We'll see you next week.
1: You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.